Well, after some wait, we're finally, this morning, going to be starting our way through a new book of the Bible, a new study, into the book of Philippians. So, why don't you grab your Bibles and open them to Acts 16. Yeah. I'm actually not joking, but that's where we're starting, Acts 16. I knew I'd get you there, though, but this is where the book of Philippians starts, because this is where the church in Philippi started, and so this is where we're going to start in Acts 16. So yes, really turn there. Whenever I start a new study through a book of the Bible, I like to do some background or biographical information first. So we looked at the life of Peter when we went to First Peter, and we did a biography of Mark before we started Mark. For Philippians, we're not so much going to look at a biography of the Apostle Paul, but really a biography of the Philippian church. And the entire chapter of Acts 16 captures the beginning of the church and proves invaluable in helping us understand Paul's relationship to the church and his ensuing letter. So I figured we start today with some background into Philippians from Acts 16. I could do this the the, the boring textbook way. I could just list the author, the date, the setting, the the outline, stuff like that. But I, I trust this will prove more helpful. Because scattered all throughout Acts 16 are little snippets of background information pertaining to the Philippian church. And you'll see how this gives us a really good feel for the church even before we get to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, all this being said, we're not just going to skim our way through Acts 16 only plucking out background info for Philippians. wouldn't be faithful to Acts 16. So today we're going to be creatively pulling some double duty, primarily I'm just going to preach through Acts 16. It's a wonderful passage of scripture that has a message for you today on its own. But at the same time, we'll take little stops here and there to point out special background to the book of Philippians and the Philippian church. So I'll be like your tour guide, driving through Acts 16, but pulling over every now and then to to point out things you want to know about Philippians. I hope this will make us doubly served today, both just hearing God's word from Acts 16 for its own benefit and also preparing us to get into Philippians in the weeks to come. So without further ado, let's jump into Acts 16 now. And I'll bring you up to speed because we're jumping right into the middle of the book of Acts. So far, Paul and Barnabas have already completed their first missionary journey where they ran around and planted a bunch of churches. Now we find them at the outset of their second missionary journey. The goal, not so much to plant new churches, but to revisit and strengthen all the churches they visited on their first trip. A few years ago, the tree directly in front of the church fell over, and so the city came back and and planted a sapling in its place. And I've noticed them every so often, they come and they water it. They give it its own special watering until it gets established. And similarly, Paul knew that these sapling churches needed strengthening until they were established. So that's the goal of this second missionary journey, at least at first. Unfortunately, though, a division occurred between Paul and Barnabas over Mark. We studied that when we began Mark. It led to Paul and Barnabas to part ways. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and went up into Asia Minor. Paul's first stop, as Acts 16 begins, was Derby and then Lystra. That's where he met a young convert named Timothy. And he quickly recruited Timothy to join the team. 
We'll see later, Timothy comes to have a very special place in the book of Philippians. So much so that Paul writes the letter from Paul and Timothy. And Timothy's featured prominently in chapter 2 of Philippians as well. He's the guy, the main guy that Paul wants to send to the Philippian church to strengthen them. We'll see that later. For now, let's jump in at verse 4 of Acts 16 as we make our way through most of this chapter. Verse 4 says, Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Sounds great. And so far, so good for Paul's second missionary journey. Things are going smoothly. Yeah, I had a little hiccup with Barnabas at the beginning, but picked up Timothy. Things are going well. But that's all about to change. Because from here on out, most of the chapter details a series of hardships and difficulties and persecutions Paul and the rest endured on this trip. And through it all, though, one theme really comes to the surface. On the surface, it might look like it's just a passage about Paul's travels. But under the surface, and as you study, rising to the top, the theme of God's sovereignty really stands out. What is the sovereignty of God? It is his comprehensive rule over his creation. God is the sovereign king over creation, and his act of of managing, ruling, directing the creation is his sovereignty. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign over nations. He ordains when they rise and fall. He's sovereign over individuals from kings to slaves, directing their hearts like channels of water. Furthermore, God's sovereignty extends even over the good and the bad. Even suffering and persecution are in his hand. That's a huge lesson to be learned from Philippians. But we see it first here in Acts 16. So with this in mind, let's get a little more specific about what we're going to try and accomplish this morning. As we go through the rest of Acts 16, I want to show you three pictures of God's sovereignty that you may learn to trust God in your own life. Three pictures of God's sovereignty that you may learn to trust God in your own life. This will theologically prepare us for much of what is to come in Philippians. And like I said, we'll still be making little pit stops here and there to point out just some pure background info for Philippians. This will be a two-parter this week and next, but overall I trust this will both just edify us on its own and prepare us for our real study into Philippians in the weeks to come. So with this, let's really get started Now with this first picture, number one, God's sovereignty in direction. God's sovereignty in direction. I think you find these verses quite interesting. Look at Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. It says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, And the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This passage, I find, it's like one of those magic eye pictures. 
At first, you see nothing special, but the more you stare at it and study, the, the real picture pops out at you. And let me explain. Paul, after departing from Derby and Lystra, he and his team, they move northwest into Galatia. But notice verse 6, it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, first off, when it says Asia, it's actually talking about Asia Minor. So he really wanted to travel west. It would have taken him to cities like Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae. Those sound familiar, right? Paul would eventually get to those cities, but not right now. For whatever reason, in whatever way, the Holy Spirit said no. We, we don't know how. It doesn't say. Simply, the Holy Spirit forbade them from going, and, and they figured that out. So after being blocked by the Holy Spirit, they turn north into Mycenae. If they can't go west to the coast, they figure they'll try east or northeast. They go into Bithynia. But again, they were prevented. This time, verse 7, it says, The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Another reference to the Holy Spirit. But again, it, it doesn't tell us how. It simply states the fact they were being blocked off. So far, Paul and his team are really being frustrated. They can't go west, can't go east. They're like rats in a maze, and God keeps closing all these passages. It's like he's routing their path exactly where he wants them to go. God's sovereignty in direction is very clear. He's literally saying you can't go there, you can't go there, you only have this place to go. It doesn't tell us how. It's not the point. But Paul discerned this was God's doing. And in the end, there was only one path they could take, and that path led them to Troas, verse 8. Troas was a little coastal town on the far northwestern tip of modern-day Turkey. And there Paul received a vision directing him to Macedonia. So finally, an open door. After one after another closed doors, finally they received this open door to Macedonia. Macedonia is the region just across the sea from Troas by about 100 miles. It contains cities like Philippi and Thessalonica. And as Paul and his team journeyed there, it marked the first entrance of the gospel into Europe. And so looking back, we can clearly see God's will in directing their steps. God clearly wanted the gospel to come out of the Middle East and finally into Europe where it would thrive. But there's more actually going on here. I want you to think about this. Paul started down in Derby, made his way all the way to Troas, and I, you probably don't have that geography all in your head. What makes that really remarkable, we're talking about 500 miles of walking. Five, about 500 miles. And not talking a stroll through the park. This is difficult, mountainous, treacherous terrain. That's at least one or two months of walking. It's like walking from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and back through the mountains, through the desert. You're not taking roads or streets, at least not paved roads back then. And to make things even more remarkable, for most of that journey, Paul had no idea where they were actually going. He had no direction. In fact, every time he tried to go somewhere, God closed the door and somehow they learned you can't go there and they had to bounce back. But what did Paul do? How did he respond? Just kept walking. Just, just kept walking. Put yourself in young Timothy's sandals. You're a new believer. 
you're a new missionary, just joined the team. So you start the trip, you say to Paul, okay, Paul, where are we going? He says confidently, we're going west into Asia. So off you go. And then something happens. The text doesn't say how, but somehow the Holy Spirit prevented the team from going into Asia. Maybe there was flooding. Maybe the mountain pass was closed. Maybe there was robbers. Maybe Silas received a prophecy saying, don't go to Asia. We don't know. But simply, Asia was a no-go. So you ask Paul again, okay, now where are we going? And he says, well, let's try maybe northeast into Bithynia. So off you go. But again, somehow God closes this door. By now, it's been a couple hundred miles. At what point do you start complaining to Paul? At what point do you suggest to Paul, maybe God wants us to turn back? When does the thought, thought, when does the thought cross your mind that maybe you shouldn't be a missionary? Maybe God is telling you, I think it's time to go home and just like take a vacation or go back to mom's house. And then what about Paul? At what point did Paul start to get discouraged? He was so excited to, to resume the second missionary journey, revisit these churches. But God is closing every single door. When does Paul start to doubt if God really still wants him doing this? When does he start wondering if he should just go back to his hometown of Antioch? Mile 100, mile 300, mile 500. When do you start to doubt the mission? But you know what? The text makes no indication that Paul or any of the others had any doubts to just keep walking. Just keep walking. Even though they had no idea where they would end up, they just, they just kept walking. And to me, that's truly remarkable. Especially since I imagine most of us here would probably throw in the towel at mile 50 and go home. I think for many of us today, in a way of speaking, God gets us started on our 500-mile walk to Troas, road to Troas, and only for us to stop and give up at the first sign of adversity, the first closed door to give up. But Paul did not respond this way. Why not? What motivated Paul to keep walking upwards of 500 miles with absolutely no direction on where he was going? Well, the answer is Paul was convinced God is sovereign in direction. He knew that God was directing their every step and that God had a good purpose for it all. All they had to do was just keep walking, just be faithful to God's calling, and that's it. You see, Paul was just sticking to what he knew. He did not know where God wanted him to go. No Bible verse told him, go to this city. Just, he just knew of Christ's general call to take the gospel to all the nations and his specific call to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And on that alone, he just kept walking. And so it became very simple. Just trust God and keep walking. God will work out the rest. Some doors might close, but closed doors, they move the mission. They don't end the mission. Paul and the others simply needed to walk in faith and faithfulness to what they knew. They knew God wanted them on that journey, so just trust God, keep going, keep walking. God will provide the right opportunity. It might take 500 miles, but he will get you where he wants you to go. That's what they did. What did God do? Well, after their faithfulness, he opened the door loud and clear to Macedonia. And so the church in Europe was born. And to me, Paul's example here in this, this long journey is so remarkable. 
It serves as our first picture of God's sovereignty. This passage really puts on display God's sovereignty and direction, especially since it says outright God was literally blocking them east and west, forcing them to Troas. And from this picture, you can learn to trust God in your own life. The lesson is is simple. Trust God. Keep walking. He'll get you where he wants you to go. As the old saying goes, when one door closes, another opens. Or some put, when God closes a door somewhere, he opens a window. You can make all the plans you want, but know that God is directing your steps. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. As we've seen, God's sovereignty and direction is unmistakable here. Opening doors, closing doors, moving Paul. And see, God still does that. He still sovereignly directs our steps. How does he do that? Well, in many ways. But that's actually not the point of this text. Do you see? I mean, it doesn't even hint at the manner in which they discerned the Holy Spirit's leading. There's not even a clue how they discerned the Holy Spirit's leading. Could have been supernatural. Sure. Or it could have been natural merely through circumstance. It just doesn't say. All we know is they had desires. They wanted to go here. But they discerned somehow it wasn't God's will, and so they they just kept walking. So this is not the passage you go to to learn how to discern God's will and direction. That's, That's another passage, another topic for another day. This passage, though, shines in highlighting the right response to God's sovereign leading in your life, namely to just trust him and keep walking. And it goes for us today. You might say, well, I, I haven't heard any clear call to be a missionary, so why should I just go walking? And, and maybe not. But God's will is crystal clear in many other areas of your life. You know certain areas where God's will is, is clear. It's known to you. And in those areas, you need to learn that closed doors, circumstances, they can move the mission, but they don't end the mission. If you know something God has called you to do, just trust him, keep walking. I'll give you an example. You can apply this so many ways, but pretend you're, you're a single lady. You know 100% God wants you to marry a believing spouse. That's God's will clearly revealed, so you know something. Now, you don't know who you're going to marry. You don't know when that's going to be, how long that road will be, but you know enough to just trust God and keep walking. He will work that out as you are faithful. So let's pretend you're with an unbelieving boyfriend for many years, but you take a step of faith, You break up with him because you know that will never end in a a believing marriage. Very quickly, you find a new boyfriend through one of those Christian dating websites. He's a believer. He's got a good job. He's a good guy. And so you get engaged. But before the wedding, you learn he's actually a scam artist. He's not who he said he was. He had a fake degree. He's got a fake job. Everything's a lie. So you break it off. Clearly, that's God slamming the door shut on, on that marriage, on that guy. And, and that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean you should now go running back to the old unbelieving boyfriend. You just need to stay the course. Trust God. Keep walking. He has a destination in mind for you. Just be faithful to what you know. I mentioned that story because that's actually a true story. We know a young lady who that very thing happened to. And thankfully, after she called off the engagement to the scam artist guy, she trusted God and she stayed the course. 
She didn't go back to the old unbelieving boyfriend. She didn't know how things would work out. She still really wanted to get married, but she knew where God did not want her to go. Don't go with the scam artist. Don't go with the unbelieving boyfriend. Just just trust God and, and keep walking. And she did. And, and God later brought a godly man into her life, and they're now happily married. But I trust you get the point. You can apply this lesson to everything, to evangelism, to marriage. You know what God has called you to do as husbands and wives, parents. And all that God calls you to do, you just be faithful to do that, to trust God and keep walking. He will direct you where he wants you to go because God is sovereign in direction. So you just stay faithful. Well, it's time to carry on. Secondly, a second picture of God's Sovereignty here. God's sovereignty in direction. Secondly, God's sovereignty in salvation. God's sovereignty in salvation. We left off with God sovereignly directing Paul and his team to Macedonia because that's where God wanted the gospel to go. Let's pick things up now, verse 11. It says, So putting out to sea from Choras, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Now here's a good place to to take a break and point out some of that Philippians background I was telling you about, because here we're finally introduced to Philippi, the city of Philippi. Now first you might notice in Acts, the narration changes from they to we. That's because Luke, who wrote Acts, he's actually now joined the team. Luke is now with Paul at that moment, and so that's why he's writing, we went here, we went there. It actually goes further than this, this whole, the we section where he's writing in that third person, we went here, that begins and ends in Philippi. It doesn't come back in Acts until Paul comes back to Philippi in Acts 20. And furthermore, Paul's time in Philippi gets a lot of attention in Acts. All this leads us to believe Luke most likely was from Philippi. Most likely he was a resident of Philippi. So now you've got the team. It's Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. They meet Luke in Troas. He's likely the one who directs them to to start their new ministry in Philippi. It is a leading city of the district, verse 12 says. Paul wanted to reach and influence the most people, so you go to the biggest city. It's like if you want to evangelize the state of New York, you start in New York City, not Albany. Philippi was the easternmost stop of the great Roman highway known as the Ignatian Way. It's kind of like how the 10 freeway goes all the way from Santa Monica to Jacksonville, Florida. and you can You can drive the whole thing. And Philippi, it's like Jacksonville. It's the easternmost stop on this old highway. The city was positioned to control the land route to Asia Minor, so the Romans coveted Philippi. It was originally founded by Alexander the Great's father, Philip, and he was interested in the nearby gold mines. Probably a good reason to start a city. Luke also tells us in verse 12, Philippi was a Roman colony. That's actually a very important fact, especially as it relates to the book of Philippians. Philippi rose to prominence in 42 BC. It was the staging ground of one of the the biggest or most important battles of ancient Rome, the Battle of Philippi. 
So when the forces of Antony and Octavian defeated the forces of Brutus and Cassius, that critical defeat marked the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. Octavian himself would later become the emperor, and in 29 BC, he settled many of his army veterans in Philippi. So Philippi was like a Roman army veteran retirement community. They weren't old, and they retired young, these soldiers, so they were still working. But just imagine a city full of old army veterans, Roman army veterans. That's the flavor. That's the dominant flavor of Philippi. At the same time, Philippi was also made a Roman colony. And that's a big deal, too. That meant a few things. It meant, first, you, were, you had some self-governance. Rome was no longer breathing down your neck. Secondly, some huge tax breaks and who doesn't like huge tax breaks? And third, it meant everyone in Philippi automatically became a Roman citizen. And that's a huge deal. You definitely want the legal protection that comes from being a Roman citizen back then. So you put all this background together, and the picture you get of, of Philippi is that it's a very Roman city. They're proud of their Roman heritage. They're proud of their Roman citizenship. And that fact really starts to make sense of some things in Philippians because later we learn, for example, that Paul tells them in a city full of people, very proud of their Roman citizenship. He reminds them, though, then Philippians 3.20, their real citizenship is in heaven. He's playing on that word there. And so you see little Roman references like this pop up in Philippians all the time. So keep that Roman's or, yeah, Romans background, Gentile background to Philippians in mind. This also makes Philippians somewhat unique in the New Testament because most of our New Testament books have a very Jewish background, but not Philippians. In fact, Philippians is one of only a few New Testament books that never quotes the Old Testament. Paul is dealing mostly with Gentile concerns in Philippians, which that may be why it's so popular today. It just speaks to us Gentiles. Well, we'll come back to some more background in Philippians later. First, let's, let's keep going here with our Acts 16 study. Like I said, we're doing double duty today, so let's pick back up with Acts 16 and verse 13. He gets to Philippi. What does he do? Verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. As was Paul's custom on the Sabbath, he sought to minister to the Jews of the city. Paul took the message of Christ to the Jews first. He himself was a student of the great rabbi Gamaliel, and he could always find an audience among the Jews in the synagogue. So his first stop, Sabbath, Saturday morning, get to synagogue, start teaching. But the problem is there was no synagogue in Philippi. Now, why wouldn't there be a synagogue in Philippi? Well, it kind of makes sense, given that the heavy Roman background, the Jewish population wasn't big enough to support a synagogue in Philippi. Jewish law required 10 men who were heads of household in any city to form a synagogue. So there weren't even that many Jews in Philippi to start a synagogue. But even though there was no synagogue, Paul seemed to know where he was going that Sabbath, why is that? Well, the law also stipulated that if a synagogue could not be formed, they were to have a place of prayer somewhere outside the city, usually by a river. 
So they went out of the city, they went to the river, and they found a group of women praying by the river. The fact that there's no men only confirms the Jewish population is slim pickings in Philippi. So picture this scene. Maybe there's you know eight women. They're sitting under the shade of a tree by a gently flowing river. They're praying. Maybe a few of them have a bit of the Torah memorized. They're praising God. But that's it. That's all they can do. None of them are trained students of the law. They're not rabbis. They're not teachers. They doubtfully even have a copy of the Old Testament with them. All they can do is gather and pray. But then all of a sudden, these women, they see a group of men approaching them. And Paul introduces himself. He's like a traveling rabbi. He sits down to teach them. And he begins to preach the gospel to them. And here we see, for the first time ever, the gospel being preached in Europe. We see now, and Paul probably learned, the reason why God shut all those doors. It's clear now. God wanted Paul to get there and to preach the gospel to these women by the river. Already, though, let me point out, as a side note, this shows Paul has a high view of women, as does Christianity. While it's true that God doesn't call women to function as pastors, Paul displays a real love and concern for these women here. Other rabbis and Pharisees never would have done this. They would not even sit down with a group of women to teach them because they didn't value women. Each morning, the Pharisees woke up and they prayed a prayer thanking God that he had not made them Gentiles, slaves, or women. That's what they thought of women. But not Paul. Throughout his career, he would often link arms with women on the mission field. For women can greatly serve God, even if they're not pastors. Paul's concern for women extends into Philippians, where in Philippians he encourages several women, naming them by name. He later says they have, quote, shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, Philippians 4.3. Being ambassadors for Christ, that's a job for men and women. Now back to Acts, the rest of this passage gives us a wonderful example of one such woman Paul encounters and goes on to serve in his missionary endeavors, and she serves him too. Her name is Lydia. And God has sovereignly brought Paul 500 miles, closed all those doors, just so that he could come here and share the gospel with Lydia. And that's worth it. And from Lydia, we see our second picture of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty and salvation. Let's read verses 14 and 15. It says, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here we have the famous account of the conversion of Lydia Luke tells us she was a seller of purple fabrics, which means she was rich. She's from Thyatira, a city known for its manufacture of purple dye and purple goods. Purple was, back then, the hardest color to extract, so it's the hardest dye. It's the most rare, therefore the most valuable. So purple means you're rich. If you wore purple, you're rich. Lydia, she was a seller of purple fabrics. She herself was rich. We know this because later on, we find out she has a, a large estate in the city. 
And after a few people are saved in Philippi and the church starts to meet, where do they meet? Lydia's house. She is the host of the early church in Philippi. So Lydia, she's a wealthy woman, not a Jewish woman. Rather, she was a God-fearing Gentile. The text mentions she was a worshiper of God. Most likely, she turned from paganism to the God of the Jews, but had not made a full conversion. There was a category of Gentiles like this. They were called God-fearing Gentiles. And they would make them sit in the back of the synagogue. You just sit there and listen and kind of stay at arm's distance. You're always on the outside looking in. But they had come to believe that the God of the Jews was the real God. But here comes Paul. And he comes with a message of good news. Paul shares the gospel with Lydia. And on that Sabbath morning, what happens? What, what, what happens? Well, Paul, he just did such an amazing job sharing the gospel. He mentioned all the right verses. He had the best illustrations. He answered all of her questions. She couldn't help but believe. She just was so convinced she had to believe. Is that what it says? Rather, the verse says, as he's preached, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You know what that says? That says God's sovereignty and salvation. Paul spoke the truth, and you must believe the truth to be saved. But who enabled Lydia to respond in faith? Herself? No, it says very clearly the Lord enabled her even to respond in faith. All these women, they were sitting there like stone statues, unable to respond to anything Paul was saying unless God first brought them to life. But God touched Lydia's heart and brought her to life such that she responded in belief. That's how salvation works, God's sovereignty and salvation. You know Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The ones whom God foreknew. The ones, Ephesians 1.4 says, whom God predestined before the foundation of the world, God called. He drew them to himself at the right time and opened their hearts that they would believe. Then God justified them and brought them to glory. The point is, God does the work of saving. He does the work of calling, does the work of choosing, does the work of justifying. He does the work of glorifying. It's his work. It's God's sovereignty and salvation. That truth is not pleasing to the natural mind. Those in the world hate that concept that God would be in control of salvation because man likes to think he's the master of his own domain. The scripture is just way too clear on it. Yes, we must respond in repentance and faith to be saved. Absolutely. But even those come by the grace of God. Lydia is a perfect picture of this. If God doesn't open our hearts first, we would not even have the ability to respond in faith. And so is the nature of our deadness in sin. We are dead in sin. This was taught earlier in Acts. You remember Acts 13.48? Paul's preaching to some Gentiles. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many of those Gentiles believed when Paul preached? Well, as many as had been appointed to eternal life. Sounds pretty clear. 
Acts 13.48. Jesus taught the same thing, John 6.37. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And just so many verses like this that teach undeniably God's sovereignty and salvation. He's in charge of salvation. What does this mean for us today? Well, for one, it means praise him for saving you. Praise God for opening your heart to believe. You believed, right? But do you ever thank yourself for your salvation? Nobody does that. Even those who hate the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, even some Christians who don't believe it, they still thank God for their salvation. They never thank themselves for being so great to believe. And rightly so, because in their heart, they know, you know, God has saved you. It is his salvation. I mean, imagine you're lost at sea. Someone comes along in a boat, throws you the life preserver. You grab on. They pull you to safety. You get on board and you say, oh, thanks be to me. I saved myself. Do you see how hard I pulled? Like, I really pulled myself on this boat. I saved myself. Nobody says that. Nobody talks like that. They even betray in their own hearts. God is supreme in salvation. But, you know, that's not even the right picture of what God does for us. Imagine someone lost at sea and they've drowned. So they're dead. They're a dead body floating at sea. A boat comes along, throws out the life preserver. The corpse cannot even respond to grab it. It's just going to float there. Only first they must be brought to life. Then they can grab the life preserver and be pulled on board. And that's what God does for us. We respond, yes, but he acts first in sovereignly bringing us to life to enable that response. And that's how we come to believe. This is always a part of God's plan of salvation. Even in the Old Testament, he made this clear. Think back to the New Covenant promise, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God promised, he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Did you notice the phrase, I will, that God is going to do all this? What do you do? Well, you receive. That's what you do. This is God's sovereignty and salvation, and it's all over the place. So first, praise God for this work in your life. This truth is given to us. The point of it actually is meant to produce greater praise. Realizing God has done this for us and chosen and called us, that should elicit a higher praise from you than anyone else. Secondly, trust God to work in the lives of others as well. I told you we'd be looking at several pictures of God's sovereignty this morning, that you might come to trust him more in your life. Part of that also means trusting him to work in the lives of others. In evangelism, God God must work. He must open their hearts to believe. So when you're sharing the gospel with others, trust God to work. Pray for him to work. Now, I know some people really, like I said, they don't like this truth. They don't want to believe in this truth. And those who doubt or deny God's sovereignty and salvation, they always come back and say, well, if that's true, it makes evangelism pointless. What's the point? God's just going to save who he wants to save. And what's the point? 
But that could not be further from the truth. Listen, if God never intervened, if he never opened the hearts of people to believe, how many people would be saved? Zero. How many people would respond to your gospel call? Zero. Evangelism would be impossible if God were not sovereign in salvation. It's only because he is sovereign. It's only because he does intervene, that he does open eyes, as he wills, that evangelism is possible. So rather, it is because God is sovereign in salvation that we must evangelize. Now, does God need us? Well, no, but he's chosen to use us. He has given us the responsibility to share the gospel. That's, that's his design. He did it. And so that's what we must do. And as he uses us, we get the benefit of participating in his work, and he gets greater glory. I mean, God, he could have snapped his fingers, saved Lydia all by himself, perfectly, without any human intervention. But he chose to do so through Paul's preaching, which isn't perfect. Neither is mine, neither is yours. But in doing so, God gets greater glory. Picture two houses. They're both amazing, outstanding, beautiful homes. One was built by a team that used all power tools, power drills, power saws, nail guns, all that stuff. Came out nice. It's a good house. The other house was built by one guy who did everything by hand. He milled the lumber by hand. He's using hand saws, hand drills, good old nail and hammer. Both produce beautiful, amazing, stunning homes. Which builder gets more glory? Well, obviously the one who used inferior tools. And so it goes with God. He could do everything by himself perfectly, but he chooses to work through us like inferior tools in his hands. Yet by this, he gets greater glory and we get the joy of being instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Hopefully all this gives you the right perspective on evangelism. Though you are 100% responsible to evangelize, you are 0% responsible to save. That's not your job. You don't have that power. You can't open anyone's eyes. That's God's job. That doesn't mean you do nothing. You just be faithful to do what God calls you to do. And so we find in the end, it's the same as we've been saying before. Just trust God, keep walking, and in evangelism, just remain faithful to share the gospel with all around you. God will work as he pleases. That's his job. You, just be faithful. Trust God. Keep walking. Be faithful in life and in evangelism. From Paul to Lydia, here in Acts 16, we have one of the greatest examples of this in action. God's sovereignty in direction. God's sovereignty in salvation. There's one more picture of God's sovereignty here I want to show you. It's God's sovereignty in persecution. But it's so lengthy and so significant, we're going to come back next time and devote all of our time to it. It's worth our time, especially as it relates to Philippians. So, until next time, let's pray. Great God, we thank you for our time and your word this morning. Although we aim to prepare ourselves for a future study in Philippians, your word still speaks to us even right now. Acts 16, a powerful passage of your direction in Paul's life and work in Lydia's heart as well. And from this, we are edified, being encouraged that we too need to simply trust you and keep walking and be faithful. 
You've called us in many ways to minister the gospel, to be husbands, to be wives, children and parents. May we be faithful to your calling. Closed doors may come, yet as we are convinced of your calling and and choosing, may we power through by trusting you and, and keep walking. Same goes for our evangelism, Lord. Give us a greater heart for evangelism. It's precisely because we know you've promised to work in response to the preaching of the gospel that we need to get out there and preach with a great fervor and passion. We trust you to do your work, Lord, and for that we give you the glory, but enable us, empower us, and embolden us to reach the lost with the hope of Christ, the only hope for life. We thank you for your sovereign work in our own lives. We want to give you great praise for that now, Lord, and and thank you for, for touching us, for opening our hearts to believe and know Christ, our great Lord and Savior. To him, to you, be all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.